Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a special, special episode. A king-size review of Peter Jackson's King Kong. <laughs> I'm joined by my co-host, as always. What is he, some sort of Bolshevik? <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. And I am, of course, as always, joined by my beautiful co-host. He may not be a 10-ton gorilla, but he can make those ladies swoon. Stephen. I'm also just as hairy. <laughs> hey, you said that, not me. Okay. So we're doing, uh, as part of the Kai June season, we're doing a special video review of uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong, being that it is a, a monstrous production with a lot of uh, behind-the-scenes information and... Uh, Boy, is it. <laughs> ...interesting aspects related to it. Okay, Daniel, give us, give us, give us the rundown. Okay, so the rundown of this movie is that it's directed by Peter Jackson, written by Fran Walsh, Peter Jackson, and Philippa Boynes, basically the team that wrote Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's shot by Andrew Lesney, who also did Lord of the Rings, music by James Newton Howard. James Newton Howard, who didn't do Lord of the Rings, uh, produced by Wingnut Studio, which is uh, Peter Jackson's film studio, and distributed by Universal this time, not Warner Brothers. Released in 2005 with a budget of $207 million. <laughs> Oh my god. Ka-ching. And it made like 562 million at the box office. So kind of doubled the investment, which is pretty okay. Might have been like the highest grossing movie of the year. I don't know. So who is this Peter Jackson guy and why does he get to make these movies? What's up with him? So Peter Jackson, he's a director from New Zealand. He rose to prominence over the years, particularly for directing uh, in his early years, Sam Raimi style, low budget horror movies such as Bad Taste, Brain Dead, and uh, most notable, The, Fr the Frighteners. Uh, he's very sort of appreciated for his uh, technical work. All of his movies have sort of this zany, fun, but still technically proficient style to them. You know, you watch a movie by Peter Jackson, you can't fault him on a technical level, almost. Yeah. He's been a big fan of King Kong over the years. He's been trying to ha make a version of it forever, ever since pretty much the 90s. Uh, he's been pitching it and pitching it. At some point, he got in with New Line to do Lord of the Rings. He initially was hired to do the first one. That's why if you watch the Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie kind of feels relatively standalone compared to every to the other two. Relatively. Uh, that was a huge success. The Two Towers and, and The Return of the King followed, and they were also, surprise, a huge success. Pretty much the most successful movies ever made, whatever, whatever. Uh, the franchise of the century, blah, blah, blah. Won all the Oscars in the world. Uh, Peter Jackson is the most successful director at this time. In 2003, The Return of the King was one of the most highest grossing movies of all time. Still is. Still is. Uh, sold all the DVDs. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, when the Lord of the Rings fandom sort of exploded, right, uh, we're pretty much part of the generation that kind of, I don't know, grew up loving the Lord of the Rings movies. And I mean, I saw Return so of the King in theaters on the premiere. <laughs> I didn't know shit was going on because it was my first Lord of the Rings film. Wait, you didn't see the previous two? I hadn't seen the previous two and I got oh. invited by like my aunt to go to the theater. Uh. But yeah, yeah Peter Jackson I, could do whatever he wanted. Lord of the Rings was kind of one of the first uh, explosion of sort of extended cuts and alternate cuts and that kind of thing. And it, oh. and it was sort of our first glimpse at the 
what Peter Jackson can do with the license to make movies of infinite length. <laughs> so he would release over the years Lord of the Rings in different formats, in different lengths, on different home video releases over the years. So nowadays, if you if you watch the longest versions available of the of the original trilogy of the Lord of the Rings, it tallies up to about 12 hours. In a little length. under 12 hours. So that's quite a bit. And that's yep. not even counting the probably infinite amount of behind-the-scenes production footage, uh, right? The version I own has about over 24 hours of behind-the-scenes stuff. Jesus fucking Christ. And this also created a, uh, a lot of attention towards the New Zealand studio that produced the Lord of the Rings movies and helped they create a lot of the effects in it, which is Weta. Hey, kia ora. Welcome to Weta Digital. What are you waiting for? Come on in and I'll give you a tour. They worked with Peter Jackson on a lot of the projects over the years, and they were everybody was kind of clamoring, like you said, Daniel, at the end of Return of the King. Okay, what's next for this seemingly unstoppable, unstoppable train of success? And here we have King Kong 2005, basically because Peter Jackson was trying to make it forever, and now he has the license to do whatever the fuck he wants. He wanted to do this. Yep, he was originally going to make it in 96, Talks a lot about that in the commentary tracks of this movie, but went on to do Lord of the Rings instead. And after Lord of the Rings, he could do anything. So he said, I want to make King Kong. And Universal was like, yeah, we'll distribute that. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> Whatever you want, man. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's how this that's how this movie came into be. As far as I can tell, Peter Jackson has been obsessed with the original King Kong movie forever. He said he that is. he watched it when he was nine first time and he fell in love with it. He owns a bunch yeah. of the original props from the movie as well. He owns like some and of the dinosaurs. And hides them in this movie. Yes. That's that also. He owns some of the dinosaurs. He invited one of the guys who owns the original skeleton for the puppet from the original movie. But he okay. himself now actually owns one of the uh, miniatures or the armatures for King Kong because there's two of them. And he very much insists that this isn't like a new movie this is basically a remake of the original and that's what he went into it with the intention of making that this is more or less just a remake of the 1933 movie except three times as long the old kong and then new kong set and he almost looks the right scale he's very close the tingle of history absolutely wonderful king kong's come to burger king so choose any one of these. Then take any two of these delicious drinks or sides and capture the adventure with one of these six toys. So don't hang about. Roar down to Burger King. So the original King Kong movie came out in the 30s. Uh, it was a stop motion uh, masterpiece at the time. Still is, still very good. Uh, you can find it online. It's public domain. Uh, it was the brainchild of one Marion C. Cooper, who grew up reading a lot of adventure books, uh, and he wanted to do this. He had this idea for a movie about a giant ape. He was originally pitching this concept to Paramount. They didn't want it, so he went to RKO, an older movie studio that doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, and was basically hired and he assigned uh, screenwriters uh, that worked at RKO this was how the movies were done back in the day they had like screenwriters on hand including a 
very famous British novelist called Edgar Wallace, who wrote a lot of these adventure books himself, they sat down and created uh, what is known today as King Kong. And then the final screenplay was written by James Creelman and Ruth Rose, and production was set, and it was a massive hit. And it pretty much inspired everything along the lines of Godzilla, and then... Yeah, kind Godzilla of the... was very much inspired by King Kong. Yeah, and then everything snowballed into today. <laughs> yeah. When you get to get anything punches anything. You want a thing, it's punching another thing. There you go. A car punches another car. Fuck it. <laughs> fridge man. <laughs> it's a giant fridge man. And it's punching a giant toaster. But which one's got the biggest dick? <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, King Kong is uh, the story of a group of adventurers, the original King Kong, that is, uh, going to an island known as Skull Island, finding a giant monkey, well, primate, ape. I don't know what he is in the original. He doesn't really look like an ape. And bringing him back to New York, where he gets loose, climbs the Empire State's building, and falls, because he was chasing beauty. And it was beauty who killed the beast. It was beauty killed the beast. It was beauty killed the beast. And yeah, Peter Jackson's movie is basically that with some added elements. A lot of added elements. great to me. Don't not anyone. I'm sitting on top of the world. We start this movie in 1933 in New York and we follow uh, a young woman named Ann Dara who works at a theater that gets closed because it's the depression and alongside with that we also meet Carl Denham who is a schemy director who wants to shoot the next big thing and he is in possession of a map a map that can lead him to Skull Island a island that has never been visited and holds stuff he's not really sure what it holds these two characters, uh, Anne and Carl Denham, sort of cross paths when he needs to find a new actress for his movie, and he runs into Anne and gives her the part, and they set off towards Skull Island, where they find King Kong. Da, da, da. Anne gets, well, first she gets sacrificed to him, and then she gets, gets kidnapped by King Kong. They start forming a bond. The people on the ship sort of go after her, try to save her. They also capture King Kong in the end and bring him back to New York. He gets free, he gets shot on the Empire State Building and dies. It was beautiful. The movie in terms of production, obviously handled by Peter Jackson and most of the people at Weta, keeping half of New Zealand employed as usual. It, it was kind of unique at the time, especially for 2005. They did a website called uh, kongisking.com, which is still available. If you want to check it out in all its glorious 2005-iness. It is a treasure. It is a treasure. <laughs> and they would post very, very low-res footage there of behind the scenes for the movie to kind of hype up 
you know the fandom behind it the post-production stuff was a lot more interesting for me than the stuff that they showed while they were shooting uh mostly because you get to see aspects of the weather studio that you normally don't mm. see that much in behind the scenes like oh this is the rotoscoping department who want to kill themselves 24 7 because peter jackson doesn't know how to shoot a scene team to say don't worry about the blue screen don't worry we haven't got time we haven't got time we'll shoot it and they'll fix it with the roto later well these are the team that do the fixing this is the mocap department which works separately this is the miniature department and so on and so forth yeah so uh, essentially they did a, their initial bulk of uh of shooting where they shot on mostly on sets the stuff in New York was mostly done by Weta Digital in terms of the landscape and stuff to make it look like the 1930s, right? They did they did pickups 20 weeks before release with the whole main crew coming back. We heard they needed us, so we flew in to take care of business. I'm psyched that we're doing the uh, pickups because uh, I've, I think I've gotten better as an actor. I think I'm going to blow Pete away with some of my new acting techniques I'm going to bust out. So they they shipped everybody back to New Zealand tw 20 weeks before shooting to like do awkward like out of like everybody just like do this one scene Adrian Brody where you're yelling while you're clamoring to a branch. <laughs> ah, ah It's just it's hilarious to me. Also Jack Black is you know hilarious and all the behind the scenes stuff. Here's to the motion picture business. Uh -oh. <laughs> Let's do one more. Uh, apparently, one of the scenes that was shot during the pickups was the was a froze was the frozen lake scene, which we'll yeah. get to when we talk about it. Uh, which uh, apparently replaced another scene, mm -hmm. uh, and they had to ask the studio for additional money in order to shoot it. Yeah, they had to ask the studio basically for permission to do it because you know it's an extra thing they needed to do that wasn't originally in the script, and yeah. 18 weeks before release, they did ADR, which is basically filling in dialogue. Uh, you know, when you shoot stuff on set, there's always noise, mm. especially if you're shooting outdoors, because they had a set outdoors because mm. they couldn't fit it <laughs> in a in a studio lot. So they had to shoot it outdoors, and there were planes. They, this is in New Zealand, and there were planes flying on top of them in sequences. So they had to redub the dialogue for it so that you don't hear planes and stuff. And also, you know, there are there are scenes where you can hear like fans and, mm. and equipment noise from the studio. So you need to basically re-record stuff. And also the script changed. Yeah. So they had to redub sequences to fit the new changes in the script and mm. so on and so forth. What's the hardest part about ADR? Getting Jack Black oh, to yeah. keep his pants on. It's pretty hard. <laughs> I feel like I could hear my pants a little bit wrestling. I I can hear the. <laughs> let me let me take care of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's do it again. And then you had Peter Jackson in the same room. I swear to God, he's in the same room in all of these vlogs. <laughs> in this, in almost the same outfit. It looks like it stinks like death in there. I don't. <laughs> it probably does. And there's like sheet coverings over the windows, uh -huh. like you can't see any natural light, and they're just editing away at scenes, you know, for the movie and. Jesus Christ. Um, oh, yeah. They know that's what's sort of about to happen. What do you reckon, Pete? In the jungle he lives, that is where he belongs. So who do we got in this fucking movie, Daniel? Well, we got a lot of people, actually. We got Big Monkeys, we got Anne Darrow, we got Carl Denham, we got Adrian Brody. 
whatever his character is called. <laughs> Notably, we have sort of four main actors yeah. in it, all of them kind of coming off major successes. So Andy Serkis comes back to collaborate with Peter Jackson after sort of getting a big time success playing Gollum in the Lord of the Ling Lord of the Links. In the Lord of the Lord of the Jesus Christ. Lord of the Ring. After after playing Gollum in Lord of the Lord of the Flies. <laughs> after playing Gollum in Lord of the Rings, um obviously that that uh, yielded tremendous success and sort of a lot of people were fascinated by this type of performance you know this new type of motion capture technology that was yep. now being implemented into into filmmaking and uh, he's back now in this movie playing both king kong and a character called lumpy which is one of the crew members on the ship he's the chef he's the chef and and uh, also, barber. <laughs> he does a bit of all. Uh, he's, a, he's a jack of all trades. For the character of King Kong, because there's a scale issue, right? On on uh, Lord of the Rings, uh. Gollum is pretty much up to scale with Andy Serkis, right? In real life, and also proportion-wise, he's the same. So His head they is had a bit bigger, but yeah. They had Andy Serkis on set to perform sequences, particularly with Naomi Watts, because she mm. interacts more one-to-one -one with Kong. Right. So they had Andy Serkis interact with her in the sequences, and then they would replace him with a, you know, a digital larger version of Kong. Mm. The mocap at this stage, this is 2004, when they were making this, uh, it's still very, fairly rudimentary right? compared to what we have now. Like, for example, Kong Skull Island, you would have a you know full performance capture where you have every every aspect of the physical and facial performance yeah. captured in real time and then rendered onto a CG puppet. Yeah. And Andy Serkis has been a huge part of the development process over the years. Yep. As in he collaborated on a bunch of movies where he got to expand on the motion capture technology like uh, the Planet of the Apes trilogy. Yep. He's also been a big sort of proponent of the technology and has been sort of supervising a lot of productions about it. I think mm -hmm. he even owns a production studio that does motion capture. In terms of the design of, of Kong himself as a character, mm -hmm. right? Because you have Andy Serkis as Lumpy and yes, his performance factors into Kong, but you still have to have the design of the character influence you know his characterization yeah it was based on a couple of things it was based on a gorilla from spain called snowflake he looked like an old man he was much more wrinkled than what a normal gorilla is went through a lot of redesigning basically up until release it was not finished the design <laughs> of the of kong right that's why if you see the original trailer for it it has a completely different design than what it ultimately was. Mm. The main problem was they wanted it to both have a gorilla pose yeah. when it stays on all fours, you know, and it has sort of that traditional gorilla in the wild pose, right? But they also wanted it to have scenes where it stands on two legs mm. and it's able to perform sort of more humane things. So they had to like, what aspects of realistic gorillas do we want to emphasize and what aspects do we want to tone down and maybe make more human? Right. Like they talk about how, oh, we need to see the eyes at all times because mm. that's a central part of Andy Serkis's contribution is the eye movement yeah. feels very human. So they wanted to, they basically had to reduce the, the accentuated brow that gorillas have mm. and kind of scale it back so you can see the eyes more. Which right. I thought was very interesting. 
<laughs> Andy Serkis, for the research that he did for this part, he watched a lot of documentaries about gorillas, obviously. Obviously. But uh, an idea that he had, he was like, I want to go to Rwanda <laughs> to study gorillas in the wild because he went to London to the, to the zoo and watched gorillas in captivity. But he was like, I should probably study gorillas in the wild. Right. The only place to find mountain gorillas, which is what Kong is based on, is in uh, Rwanda. And he went to Peter Jackson's like, hey, can I get insured? And <laughs> to go to uh, Rwanda? Know, get deductibles from the studio to go to Rwanda. And Peter Jackson's like, no, this is very dangerous. You might get killed by gorillas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to insure this. <laughs> I mean, and the, I get it. And then, uh, <laughs> and then Andy Serkis just went by himself. And there's like footage in the behind the scenes of him, like that he filmed himself. I kind of thought, I still want to go to Rwanda. Um... But uh, I just kept it quiet. Just going through the jungle in, in Rwanda. Oh and then he God. showed up in New Zealand and he's like, so guess what? I went to Rwanda by myself. <laughs> <laughs> it was apparently very helpful because then he talked to like the people who were doing the animation and the design and stuff. And mm. he like had a bunch of notes about the gorilla behavior. So that was quite good. The way they designed the head of, of Kong, which is mm. obviously a very important part, is that they did first a mold cast mm. of all the facial expressions that it would go through. And that's how they kind of... As initially, Peter Jackson wanted a more deformed head with like a snaggle tooth and yeah. sort of emphasize this... You know, like how people with gigantism yeah. sometimes have malformations. They, he wanted kind of to have like, oh, what if a gorilla just had gigantism? Ah, all right. The, those elements kind of got toned down over time and brought back to a more realistic base. But mm. you can still see elements of it. Like he still has like a snaggle tooth and right side of his face is like a bit dripping. Mm. Right? Like it's a bit down from a, like a physical encounter. So there you go. Who do we got next? Well, we got Andaro, our lead? Question mark. Is Kong the lead or is she the lead? She's the co-lead. Mm, yeah, okay. She's a struggling actress working in New York, played by Naomi Watts, who was hot off the presses of Mulholland Drive. Very famous actress around the time. She's still a famous actress. Yeah, but this was like the height of her of her career. The high, she was she was hot at this point. What? <laughs> God damn it, Stephen. <laughs> she was very popular around this time. Uh, she does a lot of the stunts in the movie herself, actually. I did say that, yes. That's impressive. But she also did a lot of, like, rehearsals for dance numbers, because she does, like, two dance numbers in the movie. Well, technically three, if you count the one she does with Kong. But the problem was they ended up cutting a lot of it, so she ended up doing, like, these two to four minute dance performances, and then they cut it <laughs> down to, like, ten seconds. Mm. Uh, poor Naomi. Down over the In a lot of the scenes where she's with Kong and where Andy Serkis wasn't really involved, she's acting basically by herself with a very small crew. So yeah, she had to do like a lot to get it right. And Peter Jackson being a director who doesn't famously shoot a lot of extra takes, it wasn't hard on her, but it was it was hard for her to get it right in, you know, the few takes that Peter Jackson wanted. One of the scenes that shows this is actually the first scene they shot, which is when they arrive on the docks and you see the ship for the first time. That was the first night of shooting. 
and they actually had to do that like 30 times the first shot of Anne on on it because they just couldn't get it right and Peter Jackson talks a lot about in the commentary tracks how he was really embarrassed about it because it was the first night and he's not he's not like a David Fincher who shoots like the same scene like a hundred times so he was very embarrassed about you know not getting it right but then after that after that opening bit the rest of the night apparently worked pretty well and after that it was was fine They didn't want her and Kong to talk, so there was a lot of Naomi Watts just acting to nothing and trying to be emotive to nothing, <laughs> uh, and sometimes just on a pure blue screen set because they would put in the jungle in post, right? Which sounds really weird to say, but so she did a, a really she had a really hard job in front of her to do this, and she did a pretty good job, I would say. I agree. Um, cough. <laughs> Next character is Carl Denham, our villain. This, this movie's weird. Hero? <laughs> I would call him the hero, played by Jack Black, uh, who also was a very popular actor around this time, of course still is. He's apparently based on Orson Welles, which I hadn't noticed until I rewatched the movie for this. But yeah, I kind of get it. This was also a really interesting movie for Jack Black, because of course he's very famous for his comedic work, and here he's playing a more dramatic character who just slowly gets more and more evil as the movie progresses hot off uh, uh, school of rock he's going to teach them a lesson there will be no gold stars or demerits that will rock their world it's called rock band is this a school project it will go on your permanent record hello harvard yo jack black was one of those actors who did like 10 movies a year like yeah he was very ubiquitous yeah right? Especially in this period. For, like, I don't really know if Jack Black had a hard time with the movie compared to, like, Nomi Watts, because, of course, he has to act alongside a lot of other actors, so. But I know that he had a problem with his wig, because he had to wear a wig, because they couldn't style his hair to look like that 1930s style. So that's why mm -hmm. a lot of the early scenes, including the scene on the dock, he's wearing a hat. Ah, because okay. the the realization that he needed to wear a wig it was like on the day they figured out oh shit we can't style his hair it's too straight or something so we need to get him a wig so a lot of the early scenes that they shot with him he is wearing a hat because he's the, he doesn't have the wig he literally didn't get it until like the week after or something like that <laughs> but yeah he's our, our villain basically ah the french champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence then we have our male hero <laughs> uh i need to find the character's name quickly uh jack driscoll played by adrian brody who plays the uh, playwright who writes the script for carl denham's movie that they are shooting on skull island and nothing else and nothing else basically nah he be he becomes like Anne's love interest as they go there and sort of is the one of the pushes to sort of save her when she gets taken by kong and she's sort of there at the at the top of the World Trade Center at the end of the movie. But yeah, he doesn't really have that much to do in it. Adrian Brody. Yeah, he also would have been really hot around this time yeah, with, from uh, The Pianist, right? Yeah. He, won, he won the Oscar for that, didn't he? Peter Jackson and Philippa Boyens talks a lot in the uh, commentary track about how they w didn't want his character to be too traditionally masculine. I don't get this. I don't... <laughs> okay, so in the original King Kong, the male main character is very much like Carl Chandler's character. So Carl Chandler is supposed to be a spoof on that. Kind of, yeah. 
It's just a little bit of humor, bud. What are you, a Bolshevik or something? But they didn't want that because then the movie becomes quite a bit of like, oh, Adrian Bodhi needs to find Kong and kill Kong. And it's like, no, that's not what he's doing. He's trying to get Anne back. He doesn't really know about Kong until they run into him. Mm -hmm. The only one who actually knows about Kong at this point is is Carl Denham, who sees him through the uh, gate. Yeah, so he's not your action hero star. He's more like the emotional male hero. I don't know how to explain it. But it's very funny to have them talk about how, well, we didn't want him to be too much of a traditional masculine hero, so we cast Adrian Brody and made him a playwright. Uh, he's a sensey boy. He's a sensitive boy. We have some other people. I just thought we should mention them. We have a... Because there's a lot. The cast is huge. The cast it's is too much. huge. Like, what is this, Armageddon? <laughs> anyway, um, you know, we have Colin, Colin Hanks, the son of Tom Hanks, known for being the son of Tom Hanks, who, <laughs> who plays Preston, uh, Carl Denham's assistant, mm -hmm. very much, you know, a more emotionally righteous character than Carl Denham, kind of more, you know, centered. He, he, he's Carl Denham's, like, moral combat. Uh, there you go. For a few, Thank you. For a bit, until he goes full. Now nah, we're going to capture this ape. Uh, we have even Park, who plays Hayes, uh, one of the crew members on the ship with a military background, who is uh, looking after this young kid named Jimmy, played by Jamie, Jamie Bell. Yep. Who I'm sure is, is famous for something, but I don't remember what. He uh, would later go on to play Tintin in the uh, uh, co-produced -produ uh, Spielberg and Peter Jackson uh, Secret of the Unicorn. Oh, yeah. And he was, Daniel, you're forgetting about his most famous role as Ben Grimm in Fantastic Four, the 2015 version. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. He's not a bad he's actor, a nymphomaniac. though. Yeah, he's also a nymphomaniac. Yeah. He's not a bad actor. But, uh... He's very annoying in this. Uh, yeah. We also have a uh, Lobo Chan playing Choi, one of the <laughs> one of the crew members of the uh, crew, the ship. Crew members, yeah. He mostly doesn't do anything, and he's mostly there to be a racist stereotype. Maybe I don't, I'm not sure. Very comfortable, plenty dim light, fresh floor. Jesus, you keep down here. Lion, tiger, hippo, you name it. And of course, you mentioned Kyle Chandler playing yep. Bruce Baxter, the actor who works with Carl Denham on all his pictures. Mm -hmm. He's very much like uh, your typical macho asshole, very much, you know, into the anti-commie sentiment at the time. What are you, a Bolshevik or something? I think, uh, I think Jimmy like, oh, yeah. uh, t takes a Sharpie and uh, draws a mustache over, over all, his, all his posters that he has uh, in his room. And he comes in and he's like, what the fuck? And then he puts like a, a little hair comb over his face. And he's like, hmm, am yeah. I like, am I, am I look good with a mustache? They get on a ship, the Venture, and it sails all the way to Skull Island. Because that's where Carl Denham wants to shoot his next motion picture. Yep. You're feeling uneasy, Anne. Feeling's growing. It's washing over you. Scream, man! Scream for your life! Herb, get the camera. 
Kong, the eighth wonder of the world. Just like in the movie, now he's yours. King Kong, enter the jungle of Skull Island, where you swing Kong into action and help him battle the jaw-chomping, tail-whipping, and claw-pinching creatures. But Kong's mighty strength and powerful grip shows them all why he's the king. King Kong and his world is now playing in your world. King Kong, gripping action figures, Skull Island playset, and additional figures, each sold separately. What you know about being a big monkey? When you climb skyscrapers, you can call that mental freeze. When Godzilla Before we get into the nitty gritty, what were what were your thoughts overall on this 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 uh, Odyssey? <laughs> this Odyssey. It's kind of funny because I've been I've been kind of half jokingly said to you that I think this movie is Peter Jackson's Titanic, because if you right you, you listen to the behind the scenes stuff of Titanic, you will notice that. James Cameron loves the Titanic, like to the point where he could probably name you the fucking menu on every like floor if you wanted to. And it's the same with Peter Jackson. He loves this movie, this original movie so much that he couldn't bear to not one, not be the one remaking it. Because as we talked about with our last movie, it was originally going to go to Stephen Summer. Again, he doesn't talk about this as a remake he or as a new movie. He talks about it as a remake of the original. Which right. it kind of is, but also kind of isn't, because there are a lot of changes and there is a lot of like expansion of the story, and there are, you know, character developments that doesn't happen in the original. But overall, it is the same movie. It is just way too long. You can't make it story-wise the same as the 1931, because that that one was pre-bare bones in terms yeah. of the story. And then in order to make it the same but different, so to speak. Right. You need to expand it, and then it just becomes this overbloated mess where you yeah. have new ideas, but they don't really mesh well with the old ideas, and then you yeah. kind of get this weird thing where there's elements where I'm like, "This is really awesome." Holy yeah, I want, I really want to like this movie. Like, it's really annoying because the stuff in New York I find insufferable. <laughs> it's so annoying. I I can't stand it. Like, it's. Every so every male character in these first twenty minutes sound like Mike Stoklaska's performance in Space Cop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Say hi to the kids back home. You're on television, Space Cop. You wanna be in my rap video? You ain't getting no get on uh, go on the cigarette bar and like what like I just uh, don't stop it. Stop it. Yeah. <laughs> um I did like Naomi Watts' character in the New York setting. I like that she was more of the class that would have been affected by the Depression era. Imagine if Jack Black was the protagonist. Oh boy. Carl Denham. Yeah. Let's say they would have beefed his character a bit so he wasn't as unlikable as he ends up being, right? Like he right. was more of a protagonist role. But still he would have been like an upper classman mm. by default because he's a movie director and works, right. you know, he's done with several motion pictures. And I like that Anne Anne's character is so down. Like she she's she's basically starving. She is starving, and you know yeah. you can see in the way they they dress her that she's basically wearing like it's supposed to be winter or at least uh, fall uh, around the this sequence, and she's wearing like one coat, like one like summer coat almost, and then underneath she has like very thin summer clothes so she can't really afford clothes either she's really down on her luck and really needs this gig and i i agree i think if that's a it's a more compelling starting point than 
if it had been, you know, Jack Black's character. Totally agree. Yeah, because uh, the Jack Black stuff annoyed me because it's, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of sick. Well, I was sick for many years, so I'm, I'm in a coma at this point. Uh, of the movie self, self-referential self stuff. Oh, right. Where, you know, like, oh, it's, you know, we're making a movie, but it's also about the movie industry. And I'm like, I don't give a shit. And oh. I get that it's supposed to be like a dig at Orson Welles because he was a weirdo control freak and blah, blah, blah. The electronic flash is built in, see? Now my flash pictures don't have to be blurry or fuzzy because somebody moved. There's a sharp, vivid uh, picture for you. Carl Denham's character is both a director and you have all that aspect. Oh. But he's also, in a very literal sense, a carny. Yeah. Like he wants something as an attraction so he can make some cheap money off of it. Well, yeah, his original idea is to just shoot Skull Island and all the weird stuff that's on it and then sell it as a film. But then, of course, he sees King Kong and he sees that the Venture is a ship that transports live animals. And then he's like, well, we could take this this monkey. you see when you ha- where you have like the new and the old and they don't mesh with Carl Denham's character? Okay, you have a movie director. Right. But then he becomes an, an ex- exploitative force. You know, right. he takes Kong, he's the he's the main force that forces Kong to come to New York. Right. And so uh, wh- what what are you implying? <laughs> are you implying that movie directors are are they exploitative by nature? Or I I guess you could say that around that time a lot of directors were exploitative. I th- I think it's just the idea like in the commentary track Peter Jackson and and Philip Boynes talks about his character going from the filmmaker to the guy who would do anything. The man can climb anything. In the end, he loses the camera, and then it's like, well, what is he gonna do then? Now he doesn't have anything. Anything. He doesn't even have the footage to to bring back. So he's like, okay, let's bring back this fucking monkey. I didn't like his character that much, to be Uh honest. And I think Jack Black is a bit miscast. Okay, well, I'll be in my trailer until this is rectified. You you look at Jack Black and the only thing you can see is Jack Black. Yeah, I think it's very much a problem that that Jack Black is as known as he is and as known for a specific kind of movie that he is so it's really hard to take him seriously as you know this villain basically and it's it feels like a weird in-betweener in this where jack black is both trying to play an exaggerated movie director orson Uh. welles type but he's also still just jack black (laughs) yeah and i don't think he's bad in this movie you know what could have worked if you would have make made him a a pt barnum type he is kind of a pg barnum type yeah, but just remove the film aspect entirely because it's irrelevant anyway. Right. So you you just make him, you know, okay, we need to find new animals. Well, they actually talk about in the commentary track that the venture was a profession in this era where zoos were being more and more popular. So there was a high demand for live animals, especially exotic animals. So yeah, that could have worked. And you would have found some other reason why Anne Darrow would have been there, right? You know, whatever. Right. That's that's the big one. When they started going on the ship, that's when I kind of started getting into it. Yeah, I think the... 40 minutes. Yeah. In, <laughs> I, I started liking it, especially once it started getting a bit more serious. You know, uh-huh. like uh, the music started 
you know, swelling a bit more creepy, you know, like you have a lot more strings yeah. in it and stuff like that. The score is really good. Yeah, James and Howard is a good, good composer. So, you know, I thought that uh, even Park was very sort of, I thought he was good at Hayes, mm. as Hayes. I don't know, his relationship with Jimmy, because Jimmy's supposed to be this young kid who has mm. his whole future ahead of him. And Hayes is like this grizzled veteran. There's a deleted scene where they established that he fought in World War One. Uh-huh. You were in the army? Uh huh. The Harlem Hellfighters. 169th Infantry. Mr. Hayes led the charge across the Rhine. The 369th was the first U.S. division into France. They saw continuous battle for 191 days, longer than anyone. Zip it, Jimmy. And I just thought that their relationship was a bit eh, as in, yo, Jimmy, you better, you better get to school and learn yeah. something. And it's just like, why do you give a shit about Jimmy? <laughs> why does anybody? Because like, what's, what's the nature of your relationship? It's like, I just give a shit about this kid. It's uh-huh. like, why? Why? <laughs> I, th- I think that's also a problem with the movie being very bloated. You could literally cut these two people out of the movie. I like that they're there because they give extra like depth to the crew and stuff but mm-hmm. you could technically cut out all of their like character moments where it's just the two of them out of the movie which they did for the theatrical cut they cut out uh, the scene where they find Hayes's body really okay yeah that's not in the uh, theatrical cut and you know you have Hayes you have Lumpy played by Andy Serkis you have Jimmy you have Choi, and I liked them overall. Mm. Like, they were like a, a merry band of, you know, misfits. And I liked once they get to the island, the stuff on the island. Well, because they first interact with the natives, and I didn't like that, so... Should we talk about the natives? Yeah, I mean, we got there, so... Yeah, I was very hesitant about the like going into the commentary track because I kind of feared that Peter Jackson wouldn't talk about the natives, and I was right. <laughs> uh, well... What did he do during their scenes? He mostly talks about the the set that they're working on. Well, he talks a bit about them, but mostly in like details, mostly about the details, about the technical details, like how did we shoot this? This was a really hard day to shoot because X, Y, and Z, things like that. It's mostly Philippa Boynes who talks about writing, and she doesn't really talk much during the sequence because Peter Jackson is mostly talking about, oh, we have this big... A miniature of the wall and mm-hmm. we use that to sort of infer a lot of storytelling we didn't want to do a lot of like clear expositioning so we use the environment and some of the like behavior to sort of infer a lot of backstory they had the same guy who worked on lord of the rings's uh, fictional languages uh, make a fictional language for the natives so they do have a language it's just not a language that we know and he sort of talks about what they are when the the old woman comes out and she starts yelling at at Anne he sort of talks about what what they're what she's saying and things like that and sort of the whole situation of why they're suddenly sacrificing Anne he doesn't really talk about like why did we make them look so other? Why are why are they co- covered in mud? Yeah, like he doesn't really go that far into it. He does, however, and I feel like we could talk about it here. Go into the natives uh, as portrayed in the stage show when Kong gets back to New York, because he specifically mentions that they modeled the costumes that the stage performers are wearing of the natives of the original film and talks about how you couldn't do the natives like that like they did in the 30s film today even though i actually think he did it worse than they did in the 30s <laughs> film. oh that's incredible because 
from what I can tell, like he dehumanized the natives way more than in the original somehow. Yeah. Like the original was made in the 30s. Yeah. Probably by a bunch of racists. Oh boy! <laughs> and you gave the the native population of Skull, Skull Island even less screen time, and and less humanity. Like in the yeah, original, yeah. they even they sit and talk with them. What they're saying is incredibly racist, but you know, still. But because he decided, because they decided to go, okay, this is their own civilization. They don't speak English. They have their own language. They just other them so much that you're just sitting there going, wait a minute. Why? <laughs> this cannot have not occurred to them that this is problematic. Right. Because it's already a pro it's a problematic premise to begin with, the whole Kong idea. Yeah, yeah like the, you know. the whole Kong story is based on a lot of colonialist and therefore also racist, you know, stories. You know, it's, yeah. it is on the lost world uh, genre, which is just a big batch of colonialism you know yeah the whole uh exoticizing aspect of other cultures and right. carnism right yeah leads into that but okay you could have made a spin on it when where you could have put the natives in the right because they are yeah. they are in the right by by our eyes today mm. you know watching it today where it's like well these people were just minding their own goddamn business yeah and then they show up <laughs> and force their hand in terms of peter jackson describes that the culture of the natives are like, okay, they sacrifice to Kong every so often, you know, two times a year, whatever, in order so that he doesn't attack them. And because Anne screams and he hears it, they have to scramble to get a sacrifice ready for him out of schedule. So that's why they get Anne. Understood. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but because they don't explain that to us, you're like, wait, why are they doing this? Yeah, exactly. It like, doesn't make that much sense. They do a little bit of explaining with like, the first thing Kong does is bring her to the offering ground where there's a lot of like skeletons wearing the same necklace she is, but of course she stabs him and gets away. It's not clear because they don't really want to do that full exposition, which I get it would be weird to sort of how would they know that, you know, things like that. It's so tone deaf. Yeah. As in like the crew of the of the venture, they um the they kinda get in a scuffle with the with the locals. They start shooting. Yeah, they yeah. shoot them. Yeah, yeah. Like that's horrific horrific to do. Mm. You know, you come in there guns blazing. I mean maybe it's like it's period realistic for what people in the thirties might have done. Yeah. It's it's not pleasant to watch. No, you know, and as a viewer. Yeah, and specifically like looking at it now when you know we're more aware of those things i even i mean i think people back in 2005 also took umbrage with the the natives the way they were handled they made this movie which just doesn't give them names doesn't give them any kind of identity any kind of personality uh just treats them as people to, who are just in trouble in, in, in the way. If the filmmakers of this film didn't feel that anything that they were doing was racist, then why did they feel the need to change it from, you know, their 30s? They were purely African people protecting this, this ape. Moving the film's location from Africa to the South Sea Islands doesn't remove the stigma visited upon the native people depicted in it, says Newsday's Jim Pinkerton. A race of of islanders, a sort of a, a, a Melanesian, Micronesian society. They're very much a hunter-gatherer people. It looks like that is part of their historical culture. We had them out in the freezing cold night with no clothes on, well, very little clothes on, and then we put rain on them. 
We need to save this one white girl, even yeah. though count countless na native people died in the process, and also people from the venture. But we need to save this one white girl, and it's like, right at this point, you're kind of like, why? <laughs> Just yeah. pack up and go. Fuck it. I mean. I noted that there's a stylistic choice here that I didn't like, which is the low shutter uh, yeah. slow-mo that they do. I'm also not a big fan of that. Somebody was playing too much in the most likely avid editing software at this time. This, this is also why I kind of compare it to Titanic. It's, it's a filmmaker who has a really good handle of effects and miniatures and sets and things like that. Like big movies, you know, the minutia of what it takes to make a really big movie, but also uses it to do like really low low-tech quote-unquote stuff like the the shutter speed uh thing but also the when they shoot underwater sequences which this extended cut has an underwater sequence they shoot it dry for wet they don't drop a adrian brody i think it is into a tank and shoot him underwater no no they shoot him on wires with fans and then slow down the footage and then add the water effects and you're just sitting there going why peter <laughs> Yeah, and the slow-mo stuff I thought was the worst technical aspect of the movie to yeah. me. Because it just made it look cheap. It looked like a fucking B-movie, which I guess Peter Jackson has in his repertoire mm. before this. But, like, you're making... You're, you put so much effort into everything else. Why did you go for this? Maybe it was in style at the time. I don't know, yeah. 2005. Cut my life into pieces. This is my last resort. Suffocation. 2000 bra well they they should have attached a smash mouth uh, song at the end that would have made it an instant hit somebody once told me the world is gonna roll me what did you think of like do you think the effects on uh, kong do you think they hold up yeah i think for the most part they hold up there are there are some moments when he has to interact with live action stuff that doesn't look as great as it could but yeah, I think he holds up pretty well. I'm actually surprised at how good this movie looked. He comes across as a thinking creature, which I think that yeah. was the main idea. Like the other creatures in the movie on the... Because there, there's other creatures that yeah. are CG on Skull Island. They're mostly utilitarian, so to speak. Yeah, as in, they're like, oh, here's a big here's a big lizard or here's a, yeah, you know, yeah. a V-Rex. Yeah, they're not meant to emote, whereas King Kong is supposed to form an attachment with the audience. And he does, yeah. I think. I think he, yeah, I think he does really well. Uh, you're constantly thinking, oh, what is he thinking? What's going on in his brain? Right. I thought that was very, uh, like, a revolutionary aspect of the movie. Oh, much, yeah. You know, uh, but uh, the was this and that Final Fantasy movie. That <laughs> <laughs> the Spirits Within? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's uh... <laughs> Where are we? Philippa Boyens also talks a lot about how getting Kong's character right was very important because he's, of course, supposed to be an animal, you know. Right. But he's also supposed to be, like, emoting and being, you know, sympathetic to the audience. But they also wanted their relationship, the relationship between Anne and Kong to be kind of not to be perfect. So, for instance, when uh, they first start forming an attachment, you know, when she starts, when he starts laughing at her for falling, he keeps like pushing her over and she says no. She literally like confronts him and stops him. And it's one of the only times where 
she literally talks to him and he understands and he's like oh shit i went too far and you can actually see him sit and contemplate that he went too far no! i said no their scenes ans and kong scenes together are the probably the best part of the movie yeah because they they do sell on that emotional connection and i like that it's not uh, <laughs> there's like some weird stuff in the 30s one where it's like it's kind of bordering on sexual where oh the 70s one as well <laughs> it is <laughs> and she calls uh what is it she calls kong a chauvinist ape oh jesus <laughs> it's great and this it doesn't come across to me as a romantic relationship at all no. which i think is a good idea yeah. it's, it's, again it's an animal it's more of a we understand each other we're both yeah. sort of outcasts because mm. you see kong he doesn't have any other members of his species mm. you know you see another at some point later in the movie you see a skeleton of another giant ape-like creature so right Presumably, he's the last of his species. and That's also what they say in the commentary track, that he is considered the last one. So he doesn't have anything else of his kind to interact with. Mm. And so him and Anne, kind of like friends, which yeah. I thought was nice. It's beautiful. It's lights, camera, action with Kellogg's Battle Rollers. Direct scenes with your own King Kong Battle Rollers. Free inside special packs of Kellogg's cereals so you can challenge your mates. How long can you keep yours rolled up for? Get a blockbuster for breakfast with Kellogg's and King Kong. denim is filming these brontosauruses these spooks them and uh, there's like a bunch of raptor like creatures that are chasing the this herd of brontosauruses they run into a corridor and they start stampeding over the crew mm. of the venture i remember this sequence looking way worse than it actually did <laughs> i don't know yeah. why but it is also like it is it is like a two like you can see some of the green screen on it and you can it's not I would say this, it's not at all the fault of the animators or no, the people no. working in the effects. Because it's all the fault of Peter Jackson, really. Because the, it, it's, it's, uh, it's planned out as so improbable. Yeah, it's very cartoony. Your main cast is not stomped on by this, this endless herd of brontosauruses and wow. raptors as well. And they manage to evade every step yeah. at all times. And I'm just like, this is unrealistic. It's unrealistic. With the Brontos, one of the big influences was actually the Mama Kill from um, Return of the King. We had these two Mama Kills that just collapsed into each other into this great big heap. And what looked good with two must look even better with, you know, a dozen. And it was just a disaster. The Raptors are based on the design from uh, Peter Jackson's 96 movie. There's a lot of the big dinosaur stuff that is from the 96 movie. Uh, yeah. The, the version of the movie he would have made in 96, uh, including the V-Rex attack, which we will get right. to. <laughs> One of the guys from the Venture Crew jumps over it and kicks it yeah. in the face. <laughs> but, I thought that was pretty cool. But you can almost hear the Mario sound effect. 
Whoa, 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 whoa. Do you ever have one of those moments where you think, how the hell did I get here? Jeez, what happened to me? I was ruling the... And uh, then the stampede kind of falls off a cliff and... You know, that also looked very kind of unrealistic, like all mm. everybody's unscathed, even though like creature the size of small buildings, they all hurtle off a cliff. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I just thought it was a bit silly. At some point they get attacked while they're in a swamp by a giant piranha eel creature. Uh, what is it they call it in the commentary track? Because all the dinosaurs have names. Uh, right. I, I think the brontosauruses are called brontosauruses. Peter Jackson mentions that around the time of the movie coming out, Brontosaurus was no longer a term for... An actual dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah. It had, it had been given a different name, I can't remember. It would be more like, you know, cartoonish violence, you know, some yeah. crew members get eaten. <laughs> Carl yeah. Denham keeps rolling the camera. <laughs> yeah. Well, like a guy just, while they're <laughs> like... They're like lying on the beach and then a guy gets picked up by the fucking yeah. giant fish and he's just sitting there rolling the camera. It's like, okay. Did you get that, did you? I'm liking it, I'm liking it, and then they kill a dodo bird, and I'm like, fuck! The only animatronic creature for the entire movie, and they cut it from the theatrical cut. Yeah, but it also kind of, it doesn't look 100% there. It kind of looks a bit, yeah. I don't know, moldy, <laughs> like it's a mold. So do you think that they they wanted to include something about how, oh, it, you know, intervening in wildlife is bad and that kind of thing? No. <laughs> Well, because it doesn't, it doesn't endear the crew at all, right? No. Like, you killed a dodo bird, goddamn. Well, you also apparently murdered an entire native civilization, from what we know. <laughs> what was the point of it, then? Well, the point of it was to have, an, have a, like, scene where the audience would think that they were shooting Anne by accident. Because we see Anne run around as well, and it's intercut with the crew, and then uh, Lumpy, I actually think it is, starts shooting, and he yeah, ends up shooting he's the, the dodo bird. He's the, like the trigger happy one because he shoots right. at like bugs and shit. <laughs> yeah, that's at least the how they talk about it in the commentary track that it was okay. meant to be like a, oh no, did they shoot Anne? No, they shot an animatronic Dodo. I didn't feel bad at all when these guys were getting eaten later by all these other creatures because I was right. like, well, fuck them. They shot a Dodo bird and natives. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like, fuck them, you know, like they yeah. get what they deserve. But I think that is kind of the point of the movie specifically carl denham's character is supposed to like the further he gets into the island you know he becomes more and more of a bad guy that sort of also happens to all the others in the background like even though there is the portrayal of his his assistant sort of being the moral compass and keeping like giving him the the death stare whenever he tries to do anything schemey they're all you know responsible for this they're all kind of when they're all standing at the premiere for king kong like this was all their fault you know yeah no, that's the Peter Jackson. Like, this is mm. all my fault. Oh, I, I sobbed when I saw the first film. I was nine years old. Well, I can relate back to when I was a nine-year-old seeing it. I mean, when I saw the original when I was nine, I, I cried. That was a scene that stuck in my head ever since I saw Kong when I was nine years old. Then we see Anne because she kind of peters away from a Kong. You know, she oh. runs by herself now. And uh, she, meets, she meets like a giant croc and i note that i wrote down in my notes oh my god it's killer croc <laughs> they call him killer croc 
He looked like a monster. So they treated him like a monster. And he became a monster. She runs into a lot of different creatures on the island. Uh, it looks like a, almost like a giant Komodo dragon. Yeah, I think they talk about it in the commentary track, uh, including what they named it, which I can't remember. I did uh, like the, again, I like the designs of all the creatures. I like yeah. the... They look uh, amazing. Like, holy hell, look, the CGI looks look good. They look very good, those fucking slaves in Weta. Yeah. <laughs> I note that, noted down that, that that croc-like creature looked a lot like a character from Rango. <laughs> I'm going to oh, put a side-by-side, yeah. -side, but I'll, I, I'll prove it. Right. I'll prove it. I, th I think I know which one you're talking about. You got cold in your ears, mate. You don't pay the mortgage. You don't own the land. <laughs> Uh, and then we get to the V-Rex scene. Yeah, because the V-Rex eats the eats the croc. Do you want to hear something funny about the V-Rex scene? Sure. Peter Jackson doesn't know why it's named V-Rex. It was apparently a marketing thing. Because he calls it in the in all of the production stuff behind the scenes. They, everybody calls it a T-Rex. Yeah, but it's bigger than a T-Rex and it looks different. I wanted to do a throwback T-Rex to the sort of creature that we used to see in the old movies like the original King Kong. A Tyrannosaur with scales on his back and with crocodilian skin and things that the experts tell us, you know, dinosaurs didn't actually have, but I still think they look a lot better, they look a lot cooler in film. But it's designed like a T-Rex. Right, it's, it's designed to mimic a T-Rex, but apparently for marketing, I think for some toy line or something, it was <laughs> named the V-Rex and Peter Jackson still doesn't know why. <laughs> What what does the V stand for? I think I think it's something like you know how the T in T Rex is Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. So it might be something like Velocirosaurus or whatever, some kind of like made up denominator. Because there's multiple of them, and apparently they're a family. <laughs> yeah, there there is apparently a way you can distinguish the three V Rexes to be the father, the mother, and the son. Peter Jackson and Philip Owens talks a lot about how they are kind of the reason why Kong's uh, family is extinct. And how he has a bunch of scars on his body is also because of them. I will say, though, the shot where... So Anne gets... Uh, before the entire fight starts, she gets sort of hunted and she falls down. And then you see the V-Rex head, like, right next to her. Ah, with the little God. buck. Yeah, with the, with the bucks in its teeth and things like that. God, that shot looks good. It looks very good. And yeah. it's all CG and it's like, holy fuck. This movie's it 16 looks... years old and it looks better than anything Disney's ever put out in the last 10 years. There I said it. They would focus their CG on specific things. Yeah. Nowadays, all of it would have been CG except Naomi Watts. Yeah. Whereas in this movie, they use a lot of miniatures. Right. A lot of the backgrounds were actually miniatures or filmed elements. Well, some of the backgrounds were also CG. Not to an extent of today. Now, nowadays, they would, the, the whole of Skull Island would have been just CG. Yeah, yeah. Or they would have shot, like they did in, in Kong Skull Island, the newer King Kong movie, where they went to uh, Vietnam to shoot, and then they shot that for Skull Island, and then CGI elements in the back to make it look different. But I'm just saying, if you if you overstretch the 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 effects production house to yeah. do all, too much stuff, then one element of it will look worse by comparison. Right. And so if you have a lot of focus on like, oh, let's get, we have a, a dedicated team, we get the V-Rexes right. And right. then that team focuses only on the V-Rexes. Yeah, like they knew that the 
the big thing to get right was the creatures and yeah because a big selling point of this was the fight between kong and the v-rexes well first of all they referenced some of the moves in the original movie because there's also a t-rex fight in that movie in right. this movie but i swear to god the kong skull island fight in the end also references beat by beat some stuff in this fight <laughs> really good and you can tell like a lot of effort went to into, into it because it was a selling point of the movie yeah like i i remember when i was a young lad uh they were hyping up the release of this movie and i was seeing like tv guides and shit and on weird outdated movie news on tv and uh, a lot of it was centered around this uh, still shot of kong on one side the v-rex on the other so obviously that was a big selling point i think they used it for a lot of posters as well right he dislocates one of the v-rex's jaws like killing it apparently yeah. and it was it's like very brutal like yeah, holy shit like... one thing that did bother me during the sequence and other sequences throughout the movie was that Anne should have definitely been dead by this point because the because the way kong kind of yeah, holds her in his hand while he's fighting four or five or whatever, how many T-Rexes. There is also a lot of moments where she's like almost napped, like she's swinging towards one of them when they're hanging in the in the vines and it like naps out after her. I do, however, like the moment when they're on the ground after the big vine stuff that she goes towards him. Like you have King Kong and the V-Rex sort of staring down each other and she she takes a step back and goes towards Kong so it's like they're picking each other like they are they stand with each other i like that right and then after this the sequence doesn't she ride on on his back which i thought mm. <laughs> i thought that was cool Thank you, Seamus. Just in case. Try hard. I'm just walking on a set and say I'm going to direct this bit. If Peter feels safe, I guess I have to feel safe. Just kind of have to go with it. The oh my God, we get to this. I, the abyss, uh, or the yeah. pit, or whatever <laughs> yeah, you want to call the, it, the, the nightmare the, sequence. The, the, I'm so glad God. that so many people at Weta worked so hard to bring my nightmares to life. <laughs> this scene is horrifying. And oh my I, God, does it look good. I have a funny story about this. So I, I guess King Kong was playing on TV one night. Uh -huh. I was just doing my homework. One of my friends messaged me and he was like, turn to channel 11 or something. Right. And I was like, all right. And it was that sequence, and like at the moment where Andy Serkis is sucked alive by those fucking things. And I was like, oh my god, what the fuck? I didn't even recognize it was King Kong. I immediately turned it off. Like, and I was like, fuck you. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, even Peter Jackson thinks this scene is horrifying. The the remaining cast of the of the venture is thrown into this pit where there's a bunch of disgusting looking bugs, some things that look like penises. Is hair sticking out of some parts of it? You know, it's no hiding what it kind of resembles, and it's just disturbing. Basically, it's a it's a penis with teeth. <laughs> Comes down to that. This should not be in any. DVD, any video should not even be recorded. Yeah. But it was hysterical because they're trying to submerge this giant penis thing and trying to, oh, classic stuff. And it just, nobody could keep a straight face. Oh, yeah, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, people. Uh, giant uh, wetas. They're not cockroaches. They're wetas. No, that's that's funny. Jimmy probably shoots a Tommy gun at the at the. <laughs> That's the most improbable thing in the entire movie. Isn't if it? you know it how is. fucking, if you know how bad a Tommy gun is at hitting a target, that scene is hilarious. Yeah, because one of those disgusting giant bugs is on Adrian Brody, and Adrian Brody screams at Jimmy, "Shoot it! Shoot it!" With a Tommy gun, the most <laughs> inaccurate gun in existence. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he doesn't hit Adrian Brody once. He just he just shoots the bug, and I'm like, no fucking way. Get it off my face! Stay still. I am standing still. And that's where we find out that Jack Black's camera is broken, and all right. of his movie is lost. And that's when I guess his priorities start turning towards. Yeah, because they get saved by the captain and the remaining and the crew that went back to the ship. And that's where they sort of talk to the captain about, hey, do you want to get a bigger prize, which is Kong? Yeah, because the the venture ship would ship animals usually, right? So they would have the ability to do that, even though they don't show it, (laughs) because I don't think they figured out logistically how they would show that. But anyway. (laughs) Well, uh, they they don't do that in the original either. It's one of the biggest like biggest cuts in the movie history where they like cut from the island to Kong being at the theater. Come on! Come on, I got him! He'll be out for hours. Send to the ship. Why, in a few months it'll be up in lights on Broadway. Kong! The eighth wonder of the world! Adrian Brody goes to find Anne. He finds her. He they trek back home. Kong follows. They the rest of the crew use basically Anne as bait to trap Kong using ropes and uh, chloroform. They transport uh, tigers and lions and gorillas, I assume, to zoos so they would use chloroform to keep them down. In the original, it's gas bombs. Oh Jesus! <laughs> uh, which you can actually see when they show the chloroform for the first time. When you see inside that crate that's full of uh, chloroform bottles, you can actually see a couple of Peter Jackson's original gas bombs from the original movie in that shot. Because of course, Peter Jackson needs to fucking put his entire collection <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> they use chloroform to sedate Kong. Jack Black has his come to Jesus moment where he <laughs> throws a giant bottle of chloroform directly in Kong's face. Which was apparently one of the hardest scenes for the animators to do because it's like liquid that turns into a gas that has uh, to work on his face as well. Man, they shoved that fucking chloroform right up his nose. Like, yeah. <laughs> but like, I swear to God, Jack Black in that one sequence looked like a video game character. Uh, 
back in New York where Carl Denham has the King Kong creature as a, an attraction at a theater. And it's jam-packed full of all of his business friends and New York and uh, Hollywood people and whatever. And the people who are still alive. Okay, Jimmy and uh, the captain, they're still alive, right? Yeah, but they're not there. They're not there. <laughs> what the fuck happened to them? I don't know. They didn't want to go, I guess. They had jobs to do. I don't know. Yeah, but, yeah, but characters. What characters? What's hap- what happened to the characters? They're done. <laughs> They're done. They're, you're done. There's a nice cameo by uh, James Newton Howard as the conductor of the orchestra. Really? Yeah, he's the conductor of the orchestra. This uh, this whole sequence with uh, the stage show, I actually find really funny. Kong gets shown for the first time when the curtains drop. You see a violinist just go like, oh shit. Oh yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I love that, that shot. What That's... the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Apparently Jack Black's favorite line is also in this scene, which is the chrome steel line, because he thought it was so funny. It's perfectly safe. These chains are made of chrome steel. We get to see what Adrian Brody's doing. Apparently, he's writing a really homophobic play. <laughs> yep. She's not gonna buy this for a second. Shut up and hand me the grapefruit. Sorry. I uh, I couldn't help but over here. <laughs> they push this motif of the Beauty and the Beast and being the beauty, right. and they have her basically on stage recreating the her on a rack being. Well, that is that is not Anne. That is another I, character. I was getting played into by, that. Played by uh, Naomi Watts Standen. Yeah, because I because I thought the reveal was pretty much up until she she lifted her face all the way up. I was like, mm. why is Naomi Watts doing this? Because it, it doesn't track for a character. Because mm. they also cut it relatively clever with her pre- prepping mm. for a show. And yeah. I was like, oh, they really fucked this up because it wouldn't make sense for a character. And then it was like, oh, it's a stand-in. And I was like, yeah, that's pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah. With the flashes and everything and uh-huh. the chrome bracelets. Chrome steel. Chrome steel, they, they break and Kong is set free and he rampages on the theater, murdering a bunch of people. <laughs> he steps yeah. on some motherfuckers. And totally ruins that theater yeah that was pretty impressive considering that they didn't they couldn't do that for real obviously well it's a cgi set apparently oh oh interesting okay uh, and then he fucking leaps after adrian brody he's like you motherfucker and yeah he, he sticks his head into that uh <laughs> hallway thing that was yeah. pretty good and then he gets out and starts rampage well he doesn't really rampage it's more like he's confused yeah know? he's looking for Anne because he yeah. wants basically a friend you know or and somebody when... that he just starts pick, picking up random women, and when it's not them, he just throws them away. It's an embodiment of Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> Swipe left. <laughs> uh, for some reason, when he does that, I, I can't stop like giggling because it looks kind of funny. But it's it just like, woo! Funny. The CG doubles are kind of goofy yeah. looking. And then the military gets put in, and suddenly we're in a fucking Saber Private Ryan movie. And I like that he just hates Adrian Brody so much. Yeah, I love that he's just like, whenever Adrian Brody is around, he's just like, oh, this motherfucker's gonna get it. Because he's in a taxi and yeah. he's driving around and Kong is like, I'm gonna fucking <laughs> smash you. Flip, like, flip your car. 
He flips the car, and I'm like, how is Adrian Brody not dead? <laughs> yeah, this is a 1930s guy. He was not wearing any seatbelts. Yeah, he would have been turned inside out. He and, uh, and Anne meet in a very dramatically lit scene. <laughs> yeah, very... This is, this is, again, why I call this this movie like his version of Titanic. Both this and Titanic feels like a movie from the 40s made today. Yeah. In yeah. a way. But, uh, J- but Jack is a ape. <laughs> he will never let go. He'll never let go. Paint me like one of your French girls, Kong. <laughs> I mean, they do both die. Spoilers. I'll never let go. I promise. I know that this is supposed to be, you know, dramatic and whatever, but why are they all alone all of a sudden? We, we saw the there's military. There's no humans get... in New York. Yeah, like there are a couple of scenes there where there's nobody around them. Yeah, like when they're in like the park and things like that. Is it supposed to be Christmas? Is everybody at home? It is supposed to be Christmas, or at least around that time. Uh, okay. The uh, the scene where they're on the ice lake where they're skating around it replaced the scene where they're in front of because they're around uh, Macy's uh, mall. Apparently, the original scene was Kong playing with the Christmas light. But they replaced it with um, with uh, the scene of them on the ice. I like the scene. Yeah, I also like it. It's kind of goofy. The military nuked the ice ring. I mean, uh, fuck's sake. Now fucking Donald Trump is going to have to repair it. <laughs> Mayor Koch and Donald Trump shook hands and came out complimenting. Complimenting each other for reopening Walman Rink. And we also came in $750,000 under budget. So they, they pretty much pitch into the, the classic... Kong scales the World Trade Center. Jeremy ah, scaling the World Trade Center. You mean, you mean the Empire State Building? Whatever. Oh yeah. Oh shit. I just... <laughs> In the seventies version, uh... he climbs the World Trade Center, but not oh, this one. Oh, that's really funny. They should have yeah. done that. They should. <laughs> it was not built in the thirties. They shouldn't have done it anyway, and then have a plot twist where we re- it reveals that it's happening during 9-11. <laughs> it's, a, it's a dream of the Robert Pattinson character standing yes. in the towers yes. and yes. remember me. Yes. <laughs> I mean, why why don't they just have this twist in every movie ever? <laughs> For the listeners, if you don't know the movie Remember Me, it's a romantic drama movie where Robert Pattinson plays a guy, and the end is him standing in the World Trade Center on 9-11 oh that's it's 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 beautiful it's supposed to be like a tragic finale where you suddenly like oh shit he's not gonna get home and it's like yeah of course he ain't he's standing it oh my god yeah it's it's pretty good so he so (laughs) there's like a squad and uh, the guy in the center of the frame is like man this is new york city we're not gonna allow some dirty ape on our street blah 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 and then Kong immediately crushes the convoy. That is a, that is a scene that is not in the theatrical cut. All those people in the van are animators at Weta. Oh, interesting. Again, there's a lot of cameos in these scenes. Okay. <laughs> Skills the Empire State Building. The fighter planes from the original show up. They shoot him. He, he gets killed he- and uh, falls off the... Empire State Building to his death. There's a there's an interesting moment after he has fallen because we don't see him land. That's very important that we don't see him hit the ground. All right. At least according to Peter Jackson. All right. But there was a moment where they sort of imply that Anne is also supposed to jump afterwards. Okay. But then Adrian Brody comes up and stops her. Is that what the implication was? Yeah. I didn't get that. Did you get that? No. <laughs> is that what Peter Jackson thought we were supposed to get? Yeah. 
Oh, that's interesting, because, yeah, I didn't get that. No, me neither. Okay, so, oh, oh this is kind of interesting, because, so, is the idea then that Anne is supposed to have some sort of suicidal tendencies, or? I think it's more that she has a connection with Kong, and now that he's gone, it's like, what does she have? And then, of course, Adrian Brody comes up and goes, you have me, honey. And it's like, yeah, but. Oh, you're in this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I oh you and then she should have jumped anyway. <laughs> oh, it's you. I was hoping for Jimmy. <laughs> Jimmy's gone. Toots. Jimmy's gone. Toots doll. Tell me about this case, Chief. I'd like to give it the old college try. <sighs> Over to. And if you've seen, they have Kong, and this I, I'm not kidding. This is the real King Kong action figure, and this is you right here. <laughs> I love it. This is your action figure. Look, we actually got a close-up photograph here of you and the action figure. It's really incredible. <laughs> I, I don't know how to feel about this ending because, you know, it's supposed to be a tragic ending, right? Like It is kind of sad. It is sad. It's sad, but at the same time... You know, you, you you do have sort of the um, the breeding pair gets back together, and yeah. uh, we're supposed to be like, yay! Yeah, I think I think it's because we have that big chunk in the middle on the island that you kind of forget the character development that they did on the boat. But they didn't do that much, to be honest. I think they did. I think they did an okay job. There are some pretty good scenes with them where you can you can totally see that they're kind of falling in love with each other without them sort of explicitly saying it. But then we have that big chunk on the island that sort of is like, okay, now she's with Kong. You know, Adrian Brody's character isn't really a factor here. They're focusing more on Carl Denham. But they also kind of villainize Adrian Brody because he is holding back, and when they chloroform King Kong. Stop! Get out of And that's why they're they're not together anymore when yeah. they cut back to them in New York. They're doing their own separate right. things. What exactly is the catalyst for them then getting back together? Kong's death. <laughs> yeah, it feels very forced in a way. Yeah, and then Jack Black delivers his stupid line and well, I guess Which... killed the beast. Which is from the original, and originally, back when they were doing it in 96, they wanted Fay Ray, uh, who played Anne in the original King Kong movie, to come back and do that line as a cameo. Uh, but she uh, passed away during po uh, pre-production on this version. Mm. So they right, because I think Naomi Watts did meet her when she was cast. Yeah, She, she couldn't have been more, more, more delightful. And she gave me her blessing at the end of the night. Honestly, I don't. I can't really piece together what the message of the movie is at the end. Don't do colonialism. That's kind of inferred, but is it? <laughs> I mean, based on the actions of the main characters and notwithstanding, I would say yeah. But it's not a, a thing the movie like talks about. It's not a. It's not a thing the movie itself pushes forward. It's more through the actions of the characters. Okay, so you know, Kong is sitting there. And he's and he's supposed to be in his natural environment. He's relaxed, but kind of sad and whatever. And mm. they're looking over this beautiful jungle, you know, on Skull on Skull Island. And <laughs> Anne points at herself, 
and it says beautiful, which I thought was like, that's a very vain thing to say, is it not? Like, beautiful, like me. I get it now. (laughs) No, I think it's because he he does the same uh, motion and then she mimics it and tries to basically translate him. Because then there are, there, when there are, when they scale the, the, the Empire Empire State State Bay. <laughs> the Empire State Building, and they're looking over New York. Right. They reincorporate that, and she she says, "Oh, beautiful again, right?" Yeah, because they have a moment of peace. What's the point then? Is it peace? But I think it feels like they're trying to tell us something, but I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> right. And I'm also not quite certain because it's a re- it's really hard to what is me reading into it, which hundred percent is the colonialist angle because the movie doesn't really deal with it versus what is the movie's actual intention and they don't really get into it in the commentary track it's more like here is a story about this woman who finds this this uh, extraordinary connection with kong then that gets taken away from her by all these other people all these men they're both sort of outcasts and then i guess they feel like a sense of peace when they're together Again, this is sort of like Peter Jackson's obsession with the original. Right. I would have just changed the ending, just don't have him be killed. But then what would you do instead? Just, why doesn't Anne stick up for him and be like, hey, we should... Because she kind of doesn't have a voice or a say in it when they yeah when they initially captured him. And, and you're like, wait, what the fuck? Why doesn't she have a voice in it, right? Right. We should have then built towards or pivoted towards a point where maybe she confronts Carl Denham and be like, you Orson Welles looking motherfucker, um, you know, you caused this, you better make it right or something. Not right. that, <laughs> but, but something where she confronts these structures that have imprisoned this creature against its will. Um, I'm, yeah, I agree to that. But then again, there is also Peter Jackson's love for the original and it's like you can't not have king kong be shot on the empire state building <laughs> like it's all done to a very high standard but it's all to, to facilitate peter jackson's obsession with the movie from 1933 and to me this boggles my mind to no end <laughs> that's also kind of like why i i put this next to titanic because the same could be said about that and that big ass boat i feel like the end result of what james cameron did is better than what Peter Jackson. Did. It's in, it's incomparably better. <laughs> like because I feel like while Pete, while uh, James Cameron was obsessed with, or maybe still is, with the Titanic mythos, with the Titanic mythos, he mm. weaved it into a story that we can yeah. all relate to. But I think it's also due to the fact that the Titanic is a setting, not a story. The boat sings yeah but, you know you can you can set whatever story you want and you was that a fucking heist movie in there why haven't people done that yet especially nowadays we see a lot of reevaluation of okay how much power do we want to give to individual people right regardless of how talented or good they are at their jobs hmm. what what is it for you know to remake a movie from 1933 it feels a bit all superfluous in the end right but i also feel like i can't hate it because there is I don't, I don't. because there is so much heart poured into it on every side. It's just that it doesn't jive as well. And also, there's this idea of once you're a big budget director, you can only make big budget movies. It's like right. yeah, it has to be bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh-huh. And it's like there, there's a version of this movie that uh, of this movie that could have been a bit smaller scale. 
Right. And also, just in terms of Peter Jackson's career, again, it's not up to us what he does with his career. No, no, he can do whatever he wants. Although, do that Tintin sequel. (laughs) We see this with a bunch of directors, like Christopher Nolan is an example that comes to mind where his movies have been getting increasingly bigger and bigger to the point where they just implode on themselves. I do kind of think like Peter Jackson has sort of gone against that because nowadays he's doing a lot of documentaries. He did the World War One documentary. He's doing a Beatles documentary next. So he's not really, he's working more into producing. And of course, he's working behind the scenes at Weta and his own production company. And I think whatever he makes next will be made to a pretty high standard because that's just how he works. Yeah. Same with, with James Cameron, except James Cameron is committed to making, you know, blue cat people for the next decade. Theater, movie star, and I start to see things I recognize. You look at, at Kong Skull Island, it's a very, very different movie yeah, that's, from the original. Yeah, that's more a traditional blockbuster kind of thing we have the concept of king kong he's a giant ape that's all we keep everything else we can change whereas this it's it's just so strange that this is the route they took but it's a it's an interesting artifact to revisit yeah and again it's not bad i and i can't hate it it's just there's just elements of it that doesn't melt too well because it's too faithful to the original uh what would you give it as a rating I can't give it less than a six just because of the the sheer effort that went into it. But there are a lot of elements that really pushes it down for me, including the sort of the racist elements to it, the way the natives are handled, a lot of the sort of structural issues with it, and the fact that it's too fucking long. Theatrical cut, three hours. Extended cut, 320. How much more is there? I would give it pretty much the same rating here, mm. 6 out of 10. Don't stream it in one day like I did. <laughs> no, no, no. Or like I did. Holy hell. You're about to see history being, I guess, remade, you might say that. This Kong is going to be reanimated after 70-something years. Kong lives again. dealing with something like king kong it's it's just way more than being a movie you know there's so much oh. history it was a film that made me want to yeah we all be do. A filmmaker and then we got another influx of people when we did king kong because there's a lot of kong fans out there mm-hmm. around the world and people just wanted to work on kong and then jim cameron obviously you know avatar we were just you know we're doing avatar and we got a lot of people coming down for avatar so mm-hmm. we we're very much a, um, a company who attracts people because of the particular project we're working on, not, not just as a, we don't do a, you know, a million different jobs. Right. So what was the draw to uh, The Lovely Bones? Um. There you go. This is our final review structure for this season of Rodane, the Kaijun season, which will probably be extended to July. Yeah, probably. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, we had a we had a good ride, right? Yeah, some good movies, some not so good movies. What are you gonna do? But uh, we're gonna we're gonna do some commentary tracks from on the three movies, also kaiju related movies. We're gonna do next the Meg as yep. a commentary track with Jason Statham. Uh, with with uh, Vin Diesel or Jason Statham? It's Jason Nobody Statham. Nobody really knows. But are you sure? <laughs> I'm uh, pretty sure. Yeah, it's Jason Statham. It's, uh, it's Jason Statham. And uh, we're going to do the movie Q next uh, with uh, David Carradine. 
That's going to be interesting. And uh, we're going to cap it all off with the Danish-American production Reptilicus. Which, oh boy. <laughs> that, that, mov that movie is going to be a thing. That movie is good. This movie looks like it made all the dimes. Uh, <laughs> and cost all the dimes. <laughs> all ten. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So thank you for listening. This is yeah, our first sort of major feature length. Uh, feature length. I mean, it is feature length. It is on the length of the commentary. So uh, hopefully we're, I'm not going to kill myself while editing this. And uh, you'll get it as soon as possible. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, look forward to our next episode. Yeah. See ya. See ya.